So, you know, there are a lot of, pa- well, maybe not a lot, but there are pastors who download their sermons from the internet and just lip sync to them or, or preach what they downloaded. Uh, and uh, there are pastors as well who you can pay a lot of money to get sermons that other people can't find so they don't know you're doing that. I, I'm not that guy. Uh, I do read other sermons. I listen to a lot of other sermons. But when I'm like just, man, this sermon is written and it stinks, here's what I do. I say, Laurel, I printed that sermon out. Would you please fix it? That's my wife that I say that to. And she did that this week. Um, it's kind of cool. She said to me this. She said, this sermon, she wrote it down. She, I tell her, get a red pen and write right on it and tell me how it needs fixed. She said, this sermon is incredibly detailed and theological and doctrinal. It feels like an old-fashioned sermon. If you make these tweaks, it will be relevant. I love my wife. I love my wife like crazy. So, because, yeah, someone said me too. Did you say that, Dan? We do, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because you'd be really bored with the dry theological doctrinal stuff, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. But I I say that because um, you got to give credit where credit's due, you know? And I say that because she's not here and she can't yell at me for having told you that. So we're in good shape, okay? Um, if you've connected with Dr. Rob Reamer's material called Soul Care, um, you've, uh, you've noticed one of the analogy he uses. How many have connected with this on one level or another? Like you've seen a DVD, you've watched a little bit, you've read a little bit. Put your hands up if I can. Yeah, so probably maybe 20% of us have, yeah. In Soul Care, one of the analogies that Dr. Reamer uses is the analogy of a suitcase, He says this, he says, consider your soul, yourself, as though it is a suitcase that you travel through life with. And have you ever vacationed and when you got home, you opened your suitcase and it was like, whoa, wow. Yeah, that's the way the suitcase of your soul is sometimes. As you travel through life, the suitcase of your soul can get a lot of garbage into it. And Dr. Reamer makes this point in Soul Care. He says, if you want to be spiritually healthy and be filled with the fullness of God and his presence, you can't just put that stuff in on top of all the garbage, all the dirty laundry, all the pain, all the sin, all the lies, all the suffering, all the the wrong things you did and all the wrong things that were done to you. You need to unpack that suitcase and you need to deal with those things, whether you need healing from them or do you need to repent of them or deliver from them, whatever. That's what soul care is. It's unpacking your suitcase so that the fullness of God can dwell in you richly. And it's really a a relevant concept. You know, when I think of the end of the age, in the book of Revelation, I think you can probably look and say, that's kind of what God is doing with the cosmos. That this cosmos, this world, has kind of gotten really messed up and And God is unpacking, not his own suitcase, because it's not a mess, but he's unpacking the world's suitcase, getting rid of the garbage, getting rid of that which is wrong, getting rid of the evil, so that he can fill it with the radiance of his glory. And we're going to talk about that in some detail before we take communion today. We really see this concept being being spoken of in Revelation 14, 15, 16, and 17. So if you'd like to, open your Bibles to chapter 16 of the last book, Revelation. There is a Bible app event for this that has the information on it you might need. Now, we're not going to read chapter 14, chapter 15, 16, 17. We're not going to read all of that today. What I'm going to do instead is maybe give you some, I don't know, chapter headings or section headings. What's spoken of here? And then we'll we'll explore um, how it applies to us. If you happen to be reading chapter 14 of Revelation, you're going to read about the Lamb. By the way, who's the lamb in Revelation? Easy question, who is it? 
Jesus, yeah, yeah, the lamb that was slain, right? You're going to read about 144,000. By the way, who's 144,000? Yeah, that's what I thought. We'll talk about that, right? You're going to read about three angels. You're going to read about harvesting the earth and the winepress of God's wrath. In the next chapter, there's seven angels with seven plagues. And then in the next chapter, there's seven bowls of wrath. And then finally in chapter 17, you see this epitome, this epitome of evil, which chapter 17 calls Babylon. It actually calls it a prostitute who's riding on a beast. Now, if this is your first time here, we don't usually talk about this stuff in this kind of detail, and this is about as much detail as we're going to go in on it, just this overview of this sort of thing. But I do have to say to you that Babylon, this prostitute who's riding the beast or riding the Antichrist, is the world, the sinful world system that we live in. And the sinful world system, Babylon, which was a city that had... uh, had captivated and held Israel in slavery for about 70 years. This sinful world system, this prostitute on its beast, is characteristic of all ages, characteristic of the age we live in. Now, the reason that these are laid out in here is because these chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 are talking about the wrath of God, the wrath of God, harvesting the earth with a sickle, that's the wrath of God. Trampling on the winepress and stomping on the grapes, that's the wrath of God. And the seven plagues, the seven bowls, those are the wrath of God. These chapters speak about that which we generally don't like to speak about, God's wrath. I mean, do you like to speak about God's wrath? I thought this week, I'll put the sermon title out on Facebook like I often do, and I thought, I don't think anyone will come if they know I'm talking about the wrath of God. Maybe I'll just not do that, and I I kind of put it off until I didn't get to do it, right? But here's a question I have for you. I wonder if it would be possible for us, I wonder what it would take for us to be able to appreciate the wrath of God. Is that possible? Now, I know that in this size of a group, (laughs) we would not probably be united in our response to that question. Is it possible to appreciate the wrath of God? Well, some people would say, look, the wrath of God is something I've always had trouble getting my head wrapped around. I just don't like the idea that God has wrath. I don't want him to have wrath. God's a God of love. I don't like the wrath of God concept at all. Then there's another group of people who would say, you know what, I kind of get the wrath of God because I think there's a lot of evil goes on in this world. And frankly, if God doesn't do something about it, then he ought to retire and let someone else do something about it because the evil in this world absolutely is abhorrent. And he better have wrath. And then there's probably some of us that would say, I'm a little conflicted. I don't know what I, what I feel about that. And I'm not naive enough to think that I can actually bring those two positions together in one sermon. But I do feel like, if you will listen today, I can help you develop a better appreciation for the wrath of God. God is righteous. And his righteousness includes wrath. He is slow to anger. But there is a time to stand up and say, no more to evil. And God understands that. Our problem with God's wrath is that we tend to think of wrath in very human terms. And the wrath of God is very different than the wrath of man. One of the most transformative passages of scriptures to me, as a guy who sometimes can be angry about a lot of things, comes from the book of James, where in the King James, I love how the King James says this, it says, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Yeah, God's God's wrath is different than our wrath. Our wrath doesn't generally accomplish anything of value. The wrath of man worketh not 
the righteousness of God. However, the wrath of God, I want to show you today that that can work something that is beneficial. And the reason for that is because God's wrath is different than ours. For example, our wrath is over the top, but his wrath is justified. Some time ago, I was with a group of my peers, some other pastors. We were together, and I was angry. And I probably didn't even know I was angry. You ever like that? You know, and someone will say, you seem angry. No, I'm not angry. Well, I am now that you ask me. You know, that's a good sign, right? I didn't know that I was letting that anger show, that's for sure. And one of those pastors called me aside like a day later, and he said, why are you so angry, Steve? (laughs) Clearly, my anger was over the top. Uh, No one ever does that to God, though. No one ever takes God and pulls him aside and says, I think your anger is over the top here. Why are you so angry? Do you need some anger management or something like that? I mean, even when Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel, it is not because he feels like God is unjustified in his anger. He's just asking God to show grace because God's anger, his wrath, is never over the top. There's indication of this right in the middle of chapter 16, right in the middle of the outpouring of his wrath. Your Bibles are open to chapter 16, right? And you're going to want to follow along if you can on the various verses that I'm going to be reading. In verse 4 of chapter 16, you see the third angel pouring out God's wrath in a bowl. It says the third angel poured out his bowl on rivers, on the rivers, and the springs of water, the springs of water, and they became blood. Now let me pause there for a minute. I want to tell you, I like what rivers. <laughs> I like springs of water. I grew up on a farm. We had a spring. When we would go travel some places, I couldn't drink the water because it had so many chemicals in it. I like pure spring water. And something that ticks me off is that you f- catch fish out of the Susquehanna, you have to limit your intake because somebody put mercury in there, right? Uh, does that make you mad? When I read that the very first time, it made me really mad. Who's messing with the fresh water, right? And I have a feeling that maybe... <laughs> One might read this and one one might say, why would God do that? Why would he make the rivers and the springs of water become blood? It kind of seems wrong for God to destroy this like that. But the very next verse shows you that it's not wrong, or at least heaven doesn't think it's wrong. Look at verse 5. It says, then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are justified in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were. For they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And then the altar, then I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You see, in the middle of this outpouring of God's wrath, a heavenly messenger reminds us that God is justified in doing this. That God is not doing something unfair. That God is not out of control. That God doesn't need an anger management course because his wrath is not over the top. His wrath is justified. Along with that, our wrath is generally emotionally explosive. But God's wrath is exact and controlled. Two words. Road rage. (laughs) You know what that is, right? I'm out of control because that guy pulled out in front of me and now he's going 10 miles an hour. Road rage. (laughs) It's not something we think through. It's it's from our gut. It's an emotional explosion. It's a problem. It can get blown out of proportion. God's wrath is never that way. Never that way. It is measured and implemented carefully. And listen to this sentence. His wrath fits well 
with the unabashed rebellion of humankind. It's appropriate. It's exact. It's controlled. Someone reading the book of Revelation may read of this wrath of God in these chapters and and feel need to defend the people who are suffering. If only, one might say, if only God would give humankind a chance to repent. He does. Read the 65 books previous to the book of Revelation. Moreover, even as the angels are pouring out God's wrath, people still don't repent. Your Bible's open to Revelation 16, right? Look at verse 9. It says, they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Do you feel the flow of that sentence? They cursed the name of God who had the power to stop all this, but they're cursing his name and they're refusing to repent or honor him. And you see it again in chapter 16, in verse 21, from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague because the plague was so terrible. They're not down there saying, oh, please, God, have mercy on us. We see what we did wrong. We're so sorry. They're saying, you're wrong, God. And they are stiff-necked and stubborn and cursing him. So God is not on some kind of holy tear here. He's not emotionally boiling. He is doing exactly what he intends to do. He is doing exactly what he wants to do. And I believe he is doing it because if you read the rest of the Bible, you know God is doing this with a heart that is broken still by humankind's rebellion and subsequent suffering. Our wrath is emotionally driven, (laughs) explosive. God's wrath is exactly appropriate. Our wrath is unpredictable. God's wrath is as expected. And really comes with warning. (laughs) Unpredictable wrath. That's not a good thing. There are a number of people from whom I try to distance myself. I spoke about one of them yesterday or last week, one kind of person, that's the liar. Because you know, if he's lying about other people, he's going to be lying about you sooner or later. So I stay away from liars. God's not a liar. I don't have to stay away from him. Another kind of person that I distance myself from is the person who has a hair trigger temper. Do you know people like that? Man, the hair trigger temper person I'm not even going to go into the same room as that person because I don't want someone going off without warning. It's just not a good thing. God is not that guy either. Our wrath can be hair-triggered, unpredictable, but God's wrath is expected. He even warns humankind over and over again. The Bible says that even people who don't have the, don't have the Bible know of God and what he's like. Romans 1.20 says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, so being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God warns us who he is, what he desires, what he looks for, what he expects. And you can even see it here in Revelation 16. Look at verse 15. You see the reminder of this in the midst of these bowls. It says, look, I come like a thief. And this is like interjected. Jesus is speaking here, and he's speaking to the people reading the book. And he says, look, I come like a thief. I'm warning you, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains closed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Are you beginning to see how God's wrath is different from our wrath? The beauty of God's wrath is that it eliminates evil. People often say things like this. Things just keep getting worse in our world. Where will it all take us? When will it all end? Is God going to intervene? Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he do something? In chapter 14, 15, 16, 
and 17 of Revelation answer that question. He's doing something. He's bringing an end to this present darkness. This prostitute that we talked about earlier, who represents, I believe, the evil world system, uh, is spoken of in Revelation 17. (laughs) In verse 5 of Revelation 17, she's referred to as Babylon. And Babylon was a pagan nation that had the people of God in captivity for some 70 years. In chapter 7 of chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 7 of chapter 17, she's riding on a beast who comes from Satan. So she's pretty evil, right? She's on seven hills, it says in verse 9, which traditionally we think of as the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. And, and so you can see that she's identified with the world power that John is aware of when he writes the Revelation. And if you look at verse 10, He's talking about a succession of world powers that go back thousands of years that this evil prostitute is identified with. Babylon, the ungodliness of all the world. And these chapters tell us that that evil must be stopped because of what it does. War, poverty, oppression, Violence, murder, child abuse, substance abuse, racism, genocide, sexism, all the evils of this world. It is as though the world itself, and Romans 8 bears this out, is crying out for redemption. Stop the evil. It must come to an end. Eliminate the evil. Please, please do this, God. And this is a way whereby God explains how he's going to do that. In these chapters, you see God stopping the spread of of darkness. I mean, we're going to look at chapter 17. We're going to look at like three or four verses in a row. And verse 2 of Revelation 17 says, with her kings, and this is the prostitute, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Do you see how her evil spread to all the kingdoms of the earth? It's like Ebola. It's a darkness. It's like an infection that just goes on from one person to the next. When I visit people in the hospital or the nursing home, they used to. They don't do it anymore because people know me by now. But people are always like, hi, pastor. I held their hand out for a handshake. And I was like, nope, not shaking your hand. Do you know why? Because after I visit you, Ted, I'm going to go visit Chuck. And I don't want to take whatever you have and give it to Chuck. I don't want to be typhoid Mary, right? But there's a typhoid Mary, and she's called the prostitute. And what she's doing is spreading darkness from one place to another. The Bible says very clearly, don't be misled, bad company corrupts good character. We have this statement that we say. Have you heard a statement? It says, the only necessary thing for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Because evil will spread. It does by its very nature. If it's not stopped, it goes on and on. And the result is that people are caught in darkness. The result is people are caught in shame. The darkness of materialism. The darkness of of empty pleasure. The darkness of every kind of evil. And God is stopping the spread of evil as he pours out these bowls. In the very next verse, verse 3 of chapter 17, you see that God is putting an end to the lies. It says, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that's her, who was covered with, and here's the phrase, blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. What, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is saying something about the nature of God that is not true. Blasphemy is saying, well, if I were to stand here before you and I would say, I am God, that is a lie about God and about me, and it's blasphemous, right? If I were to stand before you and say, God isn't in your corner, he doesn't like you, 
That's blasphemy because God is love and he does like you. He loves you. So this woman on this beast is blasphemous because she lies about God. She lies about what's valuable. She lies about what's important. She lies about what your priorities should be. She lies about what you should be pursuing. And such lies cause eternal damage. Such lies as those deceive human hearts and destroy human life. And every one of us knows someone who has believed the lie of the enemy and has paid dearly. God's wrath eliminates that. He's putting an end to the lies. And in this chapter 17, God is, God is cleaning up the garbage. He's working through the suitcase, not of your soul, but a suitcase of the world. Look at it in verse 4. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, and here's a phrase, filled with abominable things and a filth of her adulteries. I'm not sure what that means abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And I'm sure that I could do some research, you know, look into some Greek words, try to get a little grammatical, historical hermeneutic going there and figure that out, but I think I'd be foolish to do so because the bottom line is, if you're wondering about that, what that woman is engaged in and your conscience has not been completely seared, you know what she's engaged in because you know it when you see it. Filth. You know it when you see it. That which is abhorrent. You know it when you see it. That which is abominable. You know it when you see it. That which is unthinkable. You know it when you see it, and sadly, we see it all too often. But God is eliminating all that evil. He's cleaning up the garbage, and he is protecting that which is good. Godly people. He's protecting all that is good. The language of verse 6 of Revelation 17 shows that our enemy is feasting on death. Feasting on the death of the good. Look at verse 6 as I read it. It says, I saw that the woman was drunk, with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. I can remember, it was probably in 1997 or 98 that I first heard this statistic. The the statistic is something you may have heard, that in our lifetime, in my lifetime, in your lifetime, more Christians have been put to death because of their faith than in all the other lifetimes, all the way back to the cross, put together. And I can remember when I heard that, I was astonished. Just like John is astonished when he sees that she is drunk on the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. I was greatly astonished. And when I think about that, I say, that's got to stop. That's got to stop. Please make that stop, God. And God says, that's what I'm doing. His wrath eliminates evil, and he protects that which is good. The wrath of God is coming to stop such things as these. And God does all this because he wants us to soak up the pure light of life. He wants us to soak up his pure light. Come about February, do you ever feel like, man, I need to get out of Clearfield County? You know, because that sun, it's not coming up as early as it should, and it's going down way before it should, and I'm not really sure why this is happening. Why is this happening? And it's cold, and it's gray, and it's ugly, and I haven't seen the sun in so long. And even if you're a redhead, that would be me a number of years ago, even if you're a redhead who burns when you go out for 20 minutes in the sun, 
you still wish that you could find a beach and just lay there and burn like a lobster, you know? Because you're like, I want to soak in the light. I am so tired of the darkness. That's a little bit of what God is offering, and it's, it's fundamental to the reason that he has to destroy the evil. He has to push back the darkness. He has to make the light available. We have this saying at Kermansville Alliance, real God, real life, real people. And the real people part means we don't pretend to be someone we're not. So I'm just going to be real honest with you and confess something that's kind of ugly. The last time I cleaned the outside of the windows in my home, Dana Smeal was the youth leader. That's more than two decades of dirt on those windows. And it is not because my wife did not encourage me to do so. She encouraged me quite lovingly, quite repeatedly. So finally, I went ahead and did it. Vern Robinson had a ladder. He brought it over. He held it. I went up. Laurel gave me a magic, magic uh, wiper thing, cleaner thing. Wow, that thing's cool. I went up. I cleaned them all off. And then Vern took his ladder and went home. And I went upstairs and I said, what are those streaks doing there? You know, I couldn't see them from the outside. They're not real bad, but you know, it's a lot of work to put that ladder off. I really wish it would have been better. And my wife came home. Listen to this. She says, wow, I love it. I cannot believe how bright these rooms are. I couldn't see the brilliance of color that is here because of the grime that was on the windows. That's a woman who wants me to do it again sometime. Amen? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You see the parallel, right? When God eliminates all evil, when he pours out his wrath and gets rid of the filth, then we're going to be able to enjoy the brilliance of his radiance. It will no longer feel like a January evening when it's cold and dark and ugly outside. It will feel like the brilliance of crystal water and the sunlight reflecting off of it in a way that you've never seen it before because he has eliminated the evil so that you can soak up the pure light that he has for you. Wow, that's amazing. If you were another church, like maybe in a different culture, you'd go, amen, brother, right? Let's try that, ready? God's gonna just make it so that when the evil's gone, the brilliance of his glory will radiate all around you and you will soak it in and it will transform your very perspective and your very soul. Amen, brother. Wow, that was pretty good. I kind of like that. Good, 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 good. Look, I see it in Revelation 14 in kind of an odd place. I want to read five verses, and I want to go back and look at them, okay? So follow along as I read verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and there was before me a lamb, that would be Jesus, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists, that of harpists, playing their harps. They must have had a great amp without harp. What do you think? And then, and then verse 3, it says, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Now listen to this. No one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They're blameless. Now, you may read that and say, who in the world are those guys? Well, they're the guys from Revelation 7, 4, where it says, then I heard a number of those sealed were 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And when I read that, you might say, who are those guys? <laughs> Still don't know who those guys are. And, and we don't know who they are, but rather than mulling over their identity, let's look at what they show us. 
they show us the beauty of belonging because they experience the beauty of belonging. They're sealed by God. It's kind of like a ring placed on a finger, a seal on her forehead. A seal means protection. You're safe. It means devotion. We are devoted to one another. It means ownership. God owns them as his cherished possession. It means set apart, not for common everyday use, but special. They belong to God. And by the way, we belong to God as well because of the cross of Christ. In fact, the communion meal we're going to share together in about five minutes says to us that we're owned by Jesus, protected by his spirit, devoted to his mission and set apart for his glory. 144,000 shows the beauty of belonging. As we soak up the pure light, we enjoy the beauty of fellowship with God. And 144,000 show that. They have that song that no one else can sing that's spoken about of in verse 3. Just they know it. It's just them. We just know the song. This song's just for us. Now, Drew, you, you write songs, you sing songs, you perform songs, you lead worship songs. Do you and I have any special song just the two of us know? No, that's kind of weird, isn't it? So it's hard for me to get my brain around how do these 144,000 have a song that just they know and no one else can know? What does that mean? And one of the things it means is they have experienced something that no one else has experienced, and they have that in common together. And we all know what that feels like a little bit. But another thing that it means is that they have intimacy with one another and with God, a beautiful friendship with God. And you have little pieces of that friendship with others. For example, Drew and I don't have songs that only the two of us know, but we have a couple inside jokes that only the two of us know. Isn't that right, Willis? <laughs> right? And, and, and you may not have a, a friend that you know a song with, but you do have a friend or two or three that kind of know what you're going to say before you even say it because your hearts are kind of knit together. And you have a friend who you might say knows you better than you know yourself. And that closeness is what these people have with one another and with God. And they show us the beauty of friendship with God. And by the way, (laughs) we have that friendship with God because of the cross of Christ. At the very first time anyone ever had communion, Jesus is sitting there. Matthew and Mark, they give us just a couple verses. John gives us chapters. And in the middle of that, in chapter 15, in verse 15 of chapter 15, Jesus says to those who are there, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from the Father I have made known to you. You and I, Jesus says, we know the same song. We know the same song. Because I want you to soak up the pure light of life who is Jesus and enjoy beauty of that friendship with God. And the way that happens is when evil is finally purged. <laughs> we enjoy the experience, the, uh, and we experience rather the beauty of belonging. We enjoy the beauty of friendship with God. We even undergo the beauty of redemption. Verse four, uh, 3 of chapter 14, it speaks about they are the redeemed of God. They've been bought. You might get the impression these people have never sinned because it does say they're really good guys. But they have sinned because you don't need to be redeemed if you haven't sinned. And so they have been redeemed, that is, bought back from evil by the blood of the Lamb, the same way you and I are redeemed. And in a few minutes, we're going to take a little cup and hold it in our hand. And in that cup will be some grape juice. And we'll look at that. And some of us will do what we do, like, okay, it's first Sunday of the month. Yeah, got communion, right? But, but if you want meaning out of it, you'll look at that and you'll say, wow, 
This cup represents the beauty of my redemption so that I can soak up the pure light of God. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And this 144,000 demonstrates the beauty of being distinct. No lie was found in their mouths, it says in verse 5. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes, verse 4 says. They don't defile themselves. They're purchased from mankind, first fruits for God. Their lives are pure, and there's a beauty to that purity and that distinction. They're sanctified, set apart for God's purpose. And by the way, that is what is provided for us at this meal. You know, we don't sing hymns in this service, and that's, that's fine with me, but we kind of lose a lot of A.B. Simpson songs because of that, because A.B. Simpson died before contemporary music showed up. He lived in the 1800s, so he was long gone. But he says this of Jesus. He says, Jesus is our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, our Glorious Lord and Coming King. All of these things, the beauty of belonging, the beauty of friendship with God, the beauty of redemption, the beauty of being sanctified, of being being one with him, come because God is going to destroy evil and he has initiated that through sending his son to die for our sins so that we could be distinct. And every time you take communion, you should think in your mind of a passage of scripture that applies to communion where the apostle Paul writes to Christians just like you and me that one should examine oneself before he eats of the bread or drinks of the cup. Take a look into your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you, am I behaving in a distinct manner? Are you developing maybe just a little bit of appreciation for the wrath of God? It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. He is unpacking the suitcase of this world, getting rid of the garbage that it is, that it is so infected with. He's pushing back the darkness. He's taking out the lies. He's getting rid of the abuse. He's getting rid of the bondage and the slavery. He's destroying it all so that he can fill the suitcase of this world, the suitcase of our lives, with the radiance of his glorious presence. I grew up watching a little bit of science fiction. And a lot of that was post-apocalyptic. When I was very small, I watched movies that my parents probably wouldn't have wanted me to watch. They weren't real bad by today's standards, but in those days, they were something, right? Mad Max, remember that. The Road Warrior, remember that. The Terminator, are you Sarah Connor? Right? Remember that. Escape from New York, the Omega Man. As I reflect on those movies, I notice uh, kind of a commonality between them. They're dark and without hope. Do you notice that? That any time the artists who presented the movies of Hollywood that I walked, that I watched rather, any time that they were putting together their thoughts, they were not marked by hope. They were marked by darkness. They were marked by nothing good to look forward to. Do you see how different <laughs> God's post-apocalyptic scenario is? It is the restoration of all things beautiful. The beauty of belonging. The beauty of friendship with God. The beauty of redemption. The beauty of being distinct. As we celebrate communion, we do so looking forward to that kind of hope.